and welcome to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Sarah Marshall. Sarah is a writer, podcaster, and media critic, and the co-host of the popular modern history podcast, You're Wrong About, which has been highlighted in The New Yorker, The Guardian, and Time Magazine. She also co-hosts the podcast, You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Her writing has appeared in The Believer, BuzzFeed, and the true crime collection, Unspeakable Acts. We're going to talk today about the musical, Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of your podcasts, and I'm just very excited to have you here on the show. Um, Before we get into our topic, we'll start with our get to know our guest questions. Um, What was your first experience with a musical? So... I thought this question through a lot before I realized that the first movie I ever saw in a theater was a musical because it was Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Um, So that was my first musical experience and my first real movie experience at the same moment. What's a musical people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? And I I feel like at this point, my reputation as a an appreciator of pop culture is such that I would be surprised if anyone was surprised at me loving anything. Like, I feel like people who listen to my podcasts know me as someone who cannot stop talking about how much she loves both Newsies and the Saw series. So at that point, almost anything is possible. But I do, there's a musical called The Apple that came out in 1980 that I sought out because it's supposed to be one of the worst movie musicals ever made. And whenever something is supposed to be the worst movie ever made, I want to see it. And it is really bad. Like they shot a lot of it, I think in an airport and they're saying like, we're not in an airport, we're in this thing. But they're just very obviously in an airport the entire time with like airport acoustics and like it's, it's bad in a lot of ways, but also, I think the songs are really catchy, and I've spent a lot of time actually listening to them on purpose. And I feel like people assume that if you're an enjoyer of, of bad media, then you must not really be enjoying it. You're just kind of being ironic about it the whole time. But I feel like it's like I can't really sit through a movie if I'm not actually enjoying it to some extent. And I think that like, you know, a musical, just like any other kind of movie can be very weak in a lot of ways, but like still have like kind of a weirdly present musical soul somehow. And uh, that's The Apple, very strange movie. Wow, I'm gonna have, I've never heard of it. I'm gonna have to look this up and and give it a watch. (laughs) 
What's the last great musical you saw? This is a trick answer because it's not new at all, but I watched Fiddler on the Roof for the first time recently since I was in the eighth grade. And I feel like there should be a word for like, when you know something is good, when everyone knows it, it's good, but you're like, oh, but it's really hitting me hard how good this thing is. <laughs> like, it's still like, it feels, it felt very fresh to me. Um, and yeah, that that was um, that was the last musical experience I had where I kind of came to something with fresh eyes and kind of felt my heart being opened in that musical way. Yeah, I should rewatch that again because I I've seen it on stage since then, but I haven't seen the movie version since mm. I was a kid. And I have it sitting here on VHS, so, so I should definitely, I should definitely pop that in, and revisit it. And I've never seen it on stage. And like thinking about these questions makes me realize that so much of my musical experience is like, is through movies and soundtracks because I just have spent so much more time watching movies and I feel like now that it, you know we're getting toward it being possible um it's very exciting to think about like theater like theater is something that in a former time it was easier to think of as something that wouldn't like go away all of a sudden right. and I feel like maybe we can take it less for granted now who is your favorite hero or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical? I think my favorite hero is Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors. And my favorite antagonist is Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors. I feel <laughs> like that's a movie. And it, it's funny, like, thinking about this. I feel like so many characters in musicals, like, I like because they're kind of a proxy for me to experience feelings and it's harder to think of characters who you kind of see from the outside and don't feel an immediate sense of comprehension with because they're sort of meant to be easy to step into and and see the world from their perspective um Although also speaking with my, with the impression ability of someone who's always kind of thinking about the last thing they saw, like, I think Tevi is a really great character too, because his gift as a protagonist is that he like, he has a lot of growth moments. <laughs> and like, he, he's always like having a very strong opinion and then changing his mind about it in a couple of minutes and I, I would like to see more more emotional growth on that scale as 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 a heroic characteristic mm. so that's on my mind too yeah interesting um well we'll get back to seymour in a bit but <laughs> before that uh what move what moves you the most in a musical to me the thing that is interesting about kind of, and I think about this, I'm sure this is, comes up in, in a ton of areas, but I think about it most when watching movie adaptations of musicals, this thing of like musicals that seem to feel like they're apologizing for being musicals. Like we, 
did an episode of You Are Good about Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And I talked about how I find it irritating that in the live action Beauty and the Beast uh, during Gaston, they're explaining that LeFou is throwing money to the people that are singing. And that's why they're singing. And it's like, you don't, I mean, they can just be singing. Like it's a musical. People just, they're just, they, <laughs> like, I don't know how to break this down more basically, but, and I feel like, and I found that annoying a, because that movie involved a lot of, had a lot of bad choices in it, I think. And B, because it feels like we don't need to raise children on movies that apologize for the fact that people are singing. We need to raise kids just seeing people singing and accepting that they are singing because that's how you express emotion in this universe. And that's how you move a story forward. And I feel like there's something, there's something that I find special about the genre and about movies that like aren't exactly in the musical genre but are flirting with it like dirty dancing i think totally does this where characters you know sing their feelings or perform their feelings perform what they're going through kind of through the magic of dance or whatever but like However it's doing it, the story is able to have a scene where characters kind of show the world like what's really in their hearts. And then the world is like, oh, oh, I see. Oh, okay, I'm gonna stop oppressing you now <laughs> or whatever. Or like, you looked beautiful out there. Um, and and if, the, and if the other characters in the show can't witness it, then the audience can. And I think that, I don't know, like I, there's so much to love about musicals as an art form. Like I love watching people sing. I love watching people dance. I love, I love learning songs um, and singing them. And there's, there's just so, there's so much richness there, but I feel like what I find at the core of it, most exciting of everything is the fact that there exists an art form where we believe in the possibility of people like expressing to each other or to the world like who they are and how they feel and being understood that like they have the optimism of believing that we can make other people understand us or offer you know insight into ourselves to people and that people can have the capacity to understand what we are showing them like that's just like to believe that is to believe in the possibility of human intimacy, basically. Mm -hmm. I think we need that. Yeah, no, I love that. What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state that you didn't think was possible to get to? So this is again revealing me as a person of limited interests. Um, but I've been thinking a lot lately about the title song in Beauty and the Beast and how, you know, this is this is a movie written for children, which doesn't mean that it's just for children, but it's like they're the primary audience and little kids, like the little kid that I was when I first saw this, have to be able to understand and enjoy it. And it has to kind of 
fit a little kid's conception of love in a way that makes the story make sense. And I find it sort of amazing just, and I don't know why I haven't really thought about the lyrics that much to this point, but that's just how it goes with songs. Like the better you know something, the less you think about it sometimes. Uh, but the the lyrics to this song are very adult. And by adult, I mean just emotionally mature and sort of um, looking at love in this way that sees it not as just something exciting, something beautiful, something, you know, that is uh, just like a pretty happy thing. Um, but as something difficult and that requires you to maybe painfully reassess who you thought that you were in order to accept being recognized by someone, basically, and to grow into a new conception of yourself. And I find it, I think there's something that I'm trying to work out about, like, why is it possible that a song can do that? Like, I feel feel like other forms of media can be more complex than we initially experienced them as, or they can be enjoyed by children and then enjoyed by adults on a different level. But there's something that feels especially remarkable to me lately about a song that you can kind of grow up on and experience one way as a child and kind of still find not just nostalgic enjoyment of, but actual new layers um, to comprehend decades later into your life. Um, yeah, and I just feel like I can't think of of a place where that is more possible than in, in songs and maybe especially in musicals. I think that leads beautifully, talking about Howard Ashman lyrics into talking about Little Shop, which is our topic today. Um, I'm so excited to talk about Little Shop with <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was really good for me because I know you're a huge fan of Little Shop and I personally had not really been a fan of Little Shop. And this process has been like, mm. maybe, like really like looking at it. Like, I mean, I've always loved the, the songs, but um, mm. kind of looking at it again and looking at why I haven't liked it in the past and maybe what... <laughs> <laughs> what I like about might like about it now that I've watched. I mean, I watched mm -hmm. the movie again. I have, I haven't seen the show since like a, in a really long time, but, um, mm -hmm. but the movie and the movie and the show are so they're not so different, but they have like very key differences that we can definitely get into. Um, but yeah, so what's, um, we can start with like, what's your, um, background experience with with this musical so i remember this was one that my mom bought at i think a tower records or something like that because she saw that the, i remember this i remember she saw the store had it on video and she was like oh a little shop of horrors i should get this because you can never find this anywhere um, and so I had the sense from the beginning that was that it was underappreciated and special, um, which I think has been true for a long, like, I think it's, it's very beloved, but it's definitely a cult 
classic. Um, and, and just really loved it. I would have been eight or nine at the time. And it, I feel like it has, and there were movies that had a little bit of that sensibility that were kind of too dark for me at that age. Like um, Tim Burton stuff was kind of too <laughs> gory and scary for me. I don't even know if any of it was gory really, but it was, it was just too scary. I was a sensitive kid. Um, but for whatever reason, people being eaten by a plant, I was fine with. Um, and it just had exactly the right tone for me. And the, you know, I loved that there was a chorus of girl group singers. I loved their outfits. I loved their hair. I loved everyone's outfits. <laughs> I loved Audrey's hair and like all of her looks. And it had puppeteering um, which is obviously very exciting for any kid who grew up on the Muppets, which I feel like is most kids, at least around that time. And and the songs are incredible. And I feel like that was in many ways just like it it felt it just felt different really than anything else that I had seen. And I remember feeling, which I think is is a feeling that a lot of people can trace back to a first experience with media that they've loved for a long time. Like it, I felt like cool for liking it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw the movie as a kid and it definitely was the uh, a movie that scared me. <laughs> and I think it was more because of the dentist mm -hmm. than the plant, the dentist part. And I think a part of yeah. it, I think part of it is the way that it's filmed in the movie too and like it's like so cold and and all the like the tools and machinery and stuff um but i i remember being scared of the movie it was not one i ever wanted to watch again <laughs> and um i think i then saw the the stage uh it on stage in college my college did it so i saw the production and that's when i realized how different the stage show is mostly in the ending mm -hmm. um, and we'll talk about that but um and i still even though i felt like it was different from the movie i still was like mm, i don't i don't think this is the show for, a show for me except for the songs that i love from it and so then mm. a couple weeks ago, I watched the movie again, um, still felt, I don't love this, but it is such an interesting show. Like, it's so mm. interesting to think about, to talk about, um, and the songs are still great. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's my kind of background with the show. And I definitely appreciate it and respect it as a musical but yeah I still feel not my favorite but but yeah <laughs> um mm -hmm. yeah and I think part of that for me is that I mean spoiler for the musical the characters die <laughs> and but mm -hmm. also the main characters die and in the movie also a lot of the characters die which is to be expected I guess because you know, there's, uh, it's it's a horror movie with a monster plant, but um, but I think for me it was kind of like the tone of it, which is what it is. But just like, 
anytime I encounter something with that kind of like, um, I don't know if it's black comedy or, or when, when people die in the story and it's kind of fun that they're dying always makes right. me feel off weirded out i don't know <laughs> so that's i think that's part of why yeah and like and in the universe yeah. of the movie it's like it's supposed to go down easy and i feel like maybe on stage originally like the tone was maybe less discordant with mm -hmm. that but i'm not sure yeah i was thinking about that because in the musical there are there are more songs of course because the movie cut out you know some of them and in the musical um mm -hmm. i think the songs that are there that are in the movie kind of are like lighter and make it a little more like i feel a little more comfortable in with those songs in the world like mm -hmm. there's the one that's like closed for renovations which is just like a like a peppy like we're closed for renovation you know and it's like oh this mm -hmm. this feels like a comfortable song I don't know. I think that helps make it a little bit lighter for me. And even scenes like when the dentist dies is a song is more of a song in the show than in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it gives it like a different, mm -hmm. a different tone, I think. Like we're, um, like this is less real, <laughs> maybe. Now, do it now. While he's gassing himself to a palpable stupor, the timing's ideal and the moment is super to ready and fire and blow the sick bastard away. <laughs> now, do it now. Just a flicker of pressure right here on the trigger and Audrey won't have to put up with that pig for another day. Now, for the girl. Now, for the plant. Now, yes, I will. <laughs> but I can't. Sorry, Bob, I'm really flying. I'll just take this. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's, it's one of those movies that I saw so much as a kid. And as a kid, I was fine with that. Like I just that, and it's funny too because there were other movies that were more that were kind of slapsticky, dark, in that same way or in a similar way that like were too upsetting for me. Like for example, Batman Forever scared the shit out of me, and that was like an action movie. But it was also, I mean, that's um, that's a Joel Schumacher movie. So it's, it's not, a, it's not played super serious either. Yeah. But that was too scary for me by far. Um, yeah. I think like, I think maybe I'm not going to generalize for children, but I think as a kid, the deaths in that movie were presented in a way that appealed to my sort of like black and white sense of morality mm -hmm. where it's like, there are good characters and there are bad characters and the bad characters are getting eaten by the plant. Like I was really believing the plant. This is why it's good that I didn't have my <laughs> own manipulative plant to be telling me to do stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think it helps in the movie that, uh, as we mentioned, the Seymour and Audrey um, live, and in the show they don't. And in mm-hmm. the the movie was supposed to end with them dying, like the show, but audiences apparently were not on board <laughs> with that, and they reshot it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I personally, I, I understand the idea of them, uh, uh, dying in the show, but I personally prefer them living <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, I tend to prefer the happier ending, um, and that's that might make me less of an artistic spirit, but oh well. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the dual endings and especially just like in, you know, overall, like, you know, what that means in terms of the themes of the show and um, Mm. with like, I guess in the before they die, just the people who have died are like bad people, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, they it's an abusive boyfriend and then the Mm -hmm. boss who is um not he we don't see him being super abusive but you get the sense that he's kind of abused Mm -hmm. Seymour his his he doesn't seem like a good father figure yeah (laughs) so so it's like okay like the bad people are dying so which I also have, like, weird, morally conflicted, feel, you know, feelings about, like, it's okay that, I feel okay that the bad people die. But, um, but then when the good people also die, and then it's, like, the question of, like, are they, are they good people? Like, what is that saying? <laughs> you know, with the... Mm-hmm with the move with the with the story and i feel like that's that's the line that test audiences probably draw like a, you know it's in american movies you can kind of you can kill someone as horribly as you want as long as they're the bad guy and you know it's when when it stops being the bad guys that we rebel but even if the bad guys maybe aren't that terrible. Yeah, and I know, like, like you know, the stories has this line of, like, you know, not line, but theme of, you know, you, you know, these people are kind of victims of circumstances and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so if they're dying they're kind of getting punished for their own <laughs> victim victim being victims of circumstances when like mm. you know then the people who because i guess you could look at it as like well seymour was complicit he you know was you know stood by while these people died and didn't help or he he was going to kill the dentist just happened to be that (laughs) he didn't 
but um mm-hmm. or he did kind of by not helping him but but he's still like you still see him as this like as this um guy who was just born into a bad situation you know and he couldn't he is put mm. in he's and he's put in this even tougher situation by encountering this this plant <laughs> that eats people and and you know he has this choice of like do i continue to feed it um or do i like just i guess he i never really see him like just decide to like should i just get rid of this plant <laughs> you know but but basically like this a, a character a protagonist a character who's a a victim of circumstances being punished for making a choice in a world where he had so few choices like mm. what is that <laughs> what is that saying whereas like that's why the movie feels a little better with that ending because it's like okay he he was able to get out of that yeah and we do the classic generic 80s horror ending where the threat is vanquished or is it right (laughs) sequel tbd (laughs) right and uh yeah and it kind of presents it like at at least now the the threat is is minimized it's like a small plant and hopefully like they'll learn from before and not have a reason to yeah hopefully mankind will learn yeah i mean it's it just occurred to me i don't know why i didn't put this together before it's so obvious but that this and the rocky horror picture show are two like cultural touchstones from you know the 70s and 80s and they're both love letters to B science fiction movies of the 50s mm. basically and they're and they just you know transform that material into shows that have a are musicals which take right. a lot more energy than a standard monster movie and B just have so much more energy than most of the, the their inspiration material ever did like i've i have you ever watched the original little shop of horrors movie no jack nicholson <laughs> in it i think it was jack nicholson's first film role um yeah it's a oh gosh what's his name i think it's a corman film mm-hmm. and it just it's very boring like you would think it would be you know and it has a human eating plant and the same characters and basically the same plot and i mean there's even a sadistic dentist but just the sort of the energy isn't there and it's not just that it's not a musical it's just sort of this rote going through the motions of a crazy plot rather than um really creating a, a fantasy realm the way that this story does yeah i i heard that they put the movie that original movie together in like a week or a very short amount of time yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you you can tell yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> so it seems like they had a great idea, didn't have a, a lot of time for execution. Yeah. And then Howard Ashman and Alan Menken came along and took that and made it what it what it should have become, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of reassuring. Like maybe as an artist, you'll have a great idea and you won't be the like be all end all person to execute it but you'll put it out in the world and someone else will make it into a musical yeah 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 it's it is comforting it's like there's a thornton wilder quote about literature but really it's all arts being a torch bring a torch race rather than uh i forget what it mm -hmm. is off the top of my head but but the image of a of a torch race mm -hmm. where you're passing the torch of the art to mm -hmm. somebody else to then build upon yeah but mm -hmm. um yeah the um and also those two little shop and rocky horror have also have that kind of queer element to them as well um mm -hmm. rocky horror more over yeah <laughs> but i like to think of yeah but yeah totally little shop having it i mean Howard, a I mean, we can start talking about Howard Ashman's work, but uh, specifically, but I, I feel like any of his, any of his work you can look at and, and there's a reading you can do of it. That's, you know, he was a gay man in, who was born in the fifties and, mm -hmm. and lived through that, lived till the nineties and that span of time and writing from that perspective, that perspective of a gay man in that time period and yeah well and then there, there's also the kind of connection to john waters a little bit because ursula was styled after divine mm -hmm. um known baltimore and which howard ashman was also from baltimore right and little shop of horrors feels baltimore too mm -hmm. and also yeah. you know and just kind of because i feel like john waters is you know there's so much 60s in his work and in kind of the conceptions of femininity in his movies and that's you know i like as a kid i was fascinated by audrey's hair and just like how it didn't move it was just this perfect it was like a halo <laughs> encircling her head and like as a little kid i was obsessed with the idea that like someday i would have boobs like it would just it would I would be transformed and the and boobs would come and Audrey was a character who like had boobs and just the sort of like the femininity on display in that movie was was super fascinating mm -hmm. to me and still is like I've never reached Audrey femininity I would <laughs> like to to try it some weekend it seems like it takes a lot of work <laughs> yeah makeup and, and <laughs> hair and all and that. And then I guess like the relationship between Seymour and Audrey too is, mm. is very interesting. And, and one might say like erotically charged mm. at moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it is true. And it gets to my question of like, why didn't he just throw it out? Like <laughs> he could have just gotten rid of that plant. Yeah from the beginning but there was I mean I feel like to, to, yeah well the the it also feels to me like 
such an interesting expression of like the the fame monster and how it comes into people's lives and this idea of like like anything I actually feel this way about Twitter <laughs> honestly <laughs> like I feel like Twitter is something that has you know it has kept me from being totally bored and isolated over the past year and it's brought so many cool things into my life and like relationships and opportunities and also like I have to keep feeding it like you wake up every morning and Twitter is like must be blood must be fresh <laughs> and you're like okay you know and then you like go on Twitter and you're dripping dripping your blood from all your fingertips in before you can get on with your day like I mean there's just so many there's so many metaphors that it works for I think because there's so many things that we do where we're like I don't feel great about this, but I'm going to lie to myself and say that I've got it under control and that the benefits outweigh the risks. And then one day I'll wake up and I'm like killing my boss. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it, and I think we all can say like, you know, we'll never, I'll never be in that kind of situation, but then, you know. Yeah. It's, but then the next total eclipse of the sun happens and like we all make some choices. <laughs> right. Right. And then, um, you know, a guy will sell you a plant that he never <laughs> that just appeared on his plant stand. He can make a few bucks from it. And <laughs> that's actually my favorite part where he's like you, the, the plant seller, I the Chinese man, he's like. Oh, I've never seen that plant before. But yeah, it's 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 three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it, when you manage that much inventory, yeah. there's got to be some surprising stuff. There is. When I used to travel a lot, there was a nursery that I loved to go to that was on the Delmarva Peninsula, like a couple miles across the state line. Uh, between Delaware and Virginia. And it sold a lot of like carnivorous plants because mm. I think those do well in the area. And it always felt like the kind of place where like, you know, if you were shopping during an eclipse, that kind of thing might happen, which would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like that relationship between Seymour and Audrey too, gets at like well one that he's um he's uh loves these exotic plants like that's a passion of his and also like mm -hmm. you just see him really have this desire to take care of something that and like have that mm. that relationship with another being that he hasn't had in his life and I wonder if he's had other plants that he's taken care of like that, but like you just really, I feel like you really mm. in this sudden relationship with this uh, plant that, mm -hmm. you know, that turns bad, but in the beginning it's, it does feel very sweet. You know, he's, you know, he sings like grow for me the way you would to any plant, <laughs> you know, you might have that you're trying to. Mm -hmm trying to coax, you know. I've given you sunshine. I've given you dirt. You've given me nothing but heartache and hurt. I'm begging you sweetly. I'm down on my knees. Oh, please, 
I've given you plant food and water to sip. Yeah, and then like, was it happenstance that this plant manifested in this exact spot to be found by Seymour? Or was the like flying saucer that left it there or whatever happened able to figure out who would be the right person to leave a tiny plant besides? Right. It's levels here. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. And I, I, don't, I forget where he was shopping, like where that shop was, but was it on Skid Row? Like, did it purposely go into like a neighborhood where a mm. lot of desperate, mm. desperate people were living? Mm. I've never thought of that before, but yeah, I like that idea. I mean, I feel like, yeah. And then establishing it in Skid Row, like, that feels like such a big part of it or such an essential part of it because, you know, like from the beginning, we know her with characters who are desperate to have any other kind of a life and and therefore are gonna maybe do some morally gray things because of that. Yeah. Yeah, the, I feel like the first saw um, the uh, down on Skid, Skid Row downtown really establishes that well. Mm -hmm. like. And it's, I mean, it, it talks so much about Uptown, too, but you never really see Uptown, mm -hmm. ever. It's, like, all downtown in Skid Row, and you yeah. have, you just have these, some characters coming in from Uptown, like, the guy who tries to, like, any person who comes in who tries to, like, make them, make Seymour famous, or make the, you know, give them money, and, and all that. That's, like, the Uptown, like, coming in, but they... It's really mm -hmm. all like all downtown in a way. Yeah, like that's the entire world. And there's something about like to me that the way the movie is made in a way that I just knew felt good when I was a kid. And now I can kind of dissect a little bit why it's working. Like it feels like such a stagey set reality like it never feels like a real city mm. it always feels like very clearly you're like on a set and like this isn't real rain and that that we're in some kind of like heightened sort of stagecraft world yeah. which i think maybe helps make the tone make sense yeah that's true i think um I think that also helps make it feel like a little off in a way like we're like mm -hmm. this is a, yeah like this is a this is a fake world there's like an artifice to this in a way that like movies that are filmed yeah on location or what however you would phrase it don't don't really have yeah it feel it feels uncanny i think and maybe a little bit like dreamlike actually yeah yeah, there's a moment where Audrey's like, when she encounters the plant big for the first time, like, is am I dreaming? <laughs> is this a dream? And he's like, no. But it it does have that um, that feel to it, which theater. I mean, theater does. I I I like to think it was Howard Ash. Well, mm -hmm. he didn't direct it, but Howard Ashman bringing that theater sensibility to to the movie itself. But um, I know you're a huge Howard Ashman fan. Um, what are some of the lyrics and uh, lines that you love from 
from the show. I mean, I feel like I remember the line that made me finally look, think like, who is this Howard Ashman person? What, because I had been watching these movies and singing these songs for my whole life. But a few years ago, I was listening to the Little Shop of Horrors soundtrack a lot. And like the lyrics in, in that are just, you know, they're spectacular. Like the kind of like verbal sparkle there is really like there's such a kind of joy to it. Um, and I remember feeling this, you know, because I had loved all those songs as a kid and then was coming back to them with this feeling of like, like artist to artist, the sense of like, I really respect what you were able to do. And I also want to be able to have as much fun as you look like you were having to have written that. So just like in, you know, in the dentist song, the line I throw when I drill a bicuspid, it's swell that they tell me I'm maladjusted. <laughs> um, I think it's such an amazing rhyme and just feels like doing like language parkour almost. Um, what else? There's plastic on the furniture to keep it neat and clean. Yeah. Um, in somewhere that's green I think is such a, a wonderful line because it's like it's very arch like it's poking fun at this character and yet it's so deeply sincere which I guess is also maybe what I love about the tone that the the movie is able to reach where like it's very campy it's very funny um you're not supposed to be taking any of this too seriously which I think was always what kept it from being too upsetting for me. But at the same time, like these are characters who really like deeply yearn and, you know, and especially, you know, the Audrey and Seymour love story is that they both are yearning for each other and without the slightest clue that that affection is being returned. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and that's such a, I think it also takes a certain kind of, artistic bravery to just tell a love story and not to try and be insincere about it but to just be fully with those characters and to believe in the things that they desire yeah yeah um to go back to somewhere that's green that yeah those lines are they're just so wonderfully like specific in in that world and i um mm -hmm. Like, and the bicuspid line, it's so interesting because I always think of Howard Ashman as a lyricist who, like, doesn't get overly complicated with the rhymes. But that one is a very, mm. uh, is a more of an, mm -hmm. is more of an intricate rhyme than I usually, like, think of him writing. Like, usually I think of his lines as just, like, mm. like beautifully simple but saying really deep things. Whereas that one kind of is is mm. more mm -hmm. more complicated. I thrill when I drill a But I mean, his rhyming, I, I think his rhyming is just so great because everything feels so of the world and of the characters and, um, yeah. 
and they are, they're so, and it's not like, like he's rhyming so much throughout, but it never, it, it's like you, you don't, you don't feel it because it's so, it feels so natural. Right. Yeah. It never feels effortful, which I feel like the only thing I find more daunting than the idea of writing lyrics to a musical is the idea of writing a mystery. Um, because both of them are things that I don't think of as of humans being capable of making, even though they clearly do all the time. Like, it's just, I don't understand, like, how do you put something like that together? It must just sort of appear one day. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, it, it seems you know, so complex and, and really, and superhuman, honestly. And and then also another line that I just remembered I, I love is uh, from the opening song, the chorus sings, Shang-a-Lang, feel the Sturm and Drang in the air. Oh yeah. <laughs> which is just like, you know, just the, and, and also kind of like, find, like using language from the worlds that you're drawing on, you know, how mm -hmm. they're in the girl group, how they're in the girl group tradition and that gets pulled in and just kind of that I don't know I just love that um yeah. that's just the word shangling deserves to be in <laughs> such a great lyric <laughs> yeah I think um the only other place I've heard that used is in a lyric a musical theater theater lyric is like in Greece or something <laughs> but I definitely prefer it in this context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rhymed um, with some German. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Um, I don't know if you know, um, their other uh, musical they did before Little Shop of um, God Bless You, Mrs., uh, Mr. Rosewater, the Kurt Vonnegut book. I don't, I mean, I know of it, but yeah, yeah. I don't know it. I'm just bringing it up because I think in my journey with Little Shop, I think I didn't fully understand mm. Little Shop until I saw a production of that musical and like kind of seeing like where they came mm. from. And there are like certain, I mean, it's not of course like a be horror takeoff or anything like that, but it's, there's just certain elements in there. Like they're, affection for writing for misfits and and people who are um mm. you know at the lower status of uh you know of society and um and i i just wanted to bring it up just because i i now think of those two musicals like as a little set <laughs> in mm. a way um because there's I love that. Yeah, there's a song in um God Bless You Mr. Rosewater that I just love that is like the the poor people are singing and they to to Mr. Rosewater who's come to come to town and it's like it, they could be Skid Row residents, you know. And um mm. and mm -hmm. they 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 sing like there's this line like um I always used to think that God just plain forgot me or even got my life mixed up with someone who is not me. Yeah. Um, and it's like, and it's set in that beautiful, like, um, Alan Menken, like somewhere that's green, you know, plunky, 
plunkety plunk mm. style and um yeah mm-hmm. and it just it's just I don't know it got me seeing little shop in a in a new light I always used to think that God just plain forgot me or maybe got my life mixed up with someone who is not me I'm still a little scared I'm still a little sad but I got to confess it ain't been half so bad I think I'm So yeah, um, for why is this so good, we're going to talk about Suddenly Seymour. And uh, why did you pick this song for why is this so good section? It was just the first song that came to mind when I thought of the phrase, why is this so good? Because I feel like practically every musical has a love duet in it. And I feel like that's probably something that it's relatively easy to do a serviceable job at because there's so many examples it seems like a learnable template and for that same reason it feels like it's hard to make that exceptional because everyone has heard so many of those and like this is a song that even if I just kind of like play it to myself in my brain it gives me chills um so why is it so good (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's funny I um this has never been my favorite song from the show but now listening to it again i really appreciate it more for me it feels like like this is a you know we've talked about like the yearning like these are characters who yearn and like this feels Mm. like an arrival like this is like their arrival kind of like at Mm. i mean obviously they yearn other things too like to get out of skid row but this feels like this moment, maybe the only moment in the show that they have arrived at a place of of something that they're not yearning as much anymore in this moment. Yeah, and it is like, and it's separate from the plant. Like they don't need the plant to be brought, <laughs> to be brought together in this moment. Um, yeah, no, I love I love the way that you put that because it does it feels like, you know, most characters in a musical like they fall in love or they want to have an adventure or, you know, they want to fall in love and have an adventure and they do and it feels but, you know, and you can, again, like do something per- perfectly decent just with those bones in it, but that can also just feel like a function of ego um or I guess this thing of like we're supporting this character who wants something because they want it and it and we identify with the process of wanting things and ideally attaining them and I feel like those are you know those are the bones of a musical that we're used to but yeah I mean I feel like I guess to build off of what you said like that moment feels very earned to me like we understand not just that these people both want each other and we support them getting what they want but also that like 
we know both of these characters pretty well by this point. And I think that we understand, like we as the audience have the information to understand that they really are going to get what they need from each other and from coming together. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how, like, you see him, like he's comforting her in the, as part of the song mm -hmm. is like, you know, he's making her feel better after like a horrible encounter with, or in a dentist. Lift up your head, wash off your mascara. Here, take my Kleenex, wipe that lipstick away. Show me your face, clean as the morning. I know things were bad, but now they're okay. Suddenly, Seymour. Standing beside you You don't need no makeup Don't have to pretend Suddenly Seymour Is here to provide you Sweet understanding Seymour's your friend also we get a little like her verse is kind of exposition-y in a way like we get a little bit of her backstory mm -hmm. <laughs> like in there um mm -hmm. with her with her you know her parents and and uh you know kind of explaining why she is in this horrible relationship but um i don't know i just love that too yeah <laughs> Yeah. And you can say things in lyrics that you could never get away with in dialogue too, but yet they do work as lyrics. Like the the line, nobody ever treated me kindly, just completely broke my heart. Mm -hmm. It breaks my heart every time. And I think that if you had someone say that in dialogue, it would be much easier to be like, well, it sounds hyperbolic. <laughs> 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 you know, but if it's happening inside of a song, then like, I mean, I think like one of the things that I like about musicals and find, you know, useful about them to put a utilitarian spin on it is the idea that like, we know from the way we interact with each other on the internet that like, if I write words, and then a bunch of random people read those words, then like, they won't hear them in my voice, they'll hear them in their voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and that will vary, that mileage will vary dramatically person to person. And I feel like music is also a way of 
much more directly kind of bringing someone to an emotional place in which they'll be receptive to the story that you're sharing with them mm -hmm. and just kind of sharing an emotion um, in a more direct and foolproof way than you can if you're only using language. And um, yeah, there's just something very powerful about that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the music in this song really goes a long way. I mean, I think a lot of people love this song just because it's so fun to sing too because there's less the belt mm, you just mm -hmm. you just get to a moment with it where you're just belting out the suddenly seymour yeah. chorus and it's i feel like it's cathartic in a way like um maybe mm -hmm. having to do with like arrival like that 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 idea of like arriving but like um yeah it's like you there's a lot of emotion that is able to come out in this moment and the music is definitely helping that mm -hmm that process. It's a great song for for belters, I guess. <laughs> to really to really yeah. Yeah. and I definitely am a belter. <laughs> yeah, there is and I have I mean when I'm when I'm driving and I'm really tired, like that's when I crack open the Disney playlist. And if I'm like, you know, at like five percent battery physically, like I'm I can still easily power through the whole next hour just if I'm singing the whole time yeah. and I can't be kind of singing along. I have to be like in the moment mm -hmm. <laughs> singing, let it go front to back. Um, <laughs> Cause yeah, there's just, I don't know. I feel like, like non belty songs are wonderful and necessary, but there is something special about, just it feels like opening up like driving a car really fast and like seeing how fast you can go just like just kind of being a little reckless with your voice maybe mm -hmm. and seeing uh how ambitious you can get <laughs> yeah yeah and i love in the chorus um it's it's Seymour is your friend. They love each other, but it's really about this friendship that they have. for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Scene to Song will be going on a summer hiatus and will return in the fall. In the meantime, you can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater. 
or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Have a wonderful summer and be sure to check back in the fall for our next episode. Music